2: Mark Chapman welcome to the Athletic Football Podcast Adam Crafton is with us as always later we'll catch up with Matt Slater after his trip to Qatar but let's get straight to it and we're going to start with the result of the weekend Brentford's 4-1 win at Stamford Bridge over Chelsea Well, let's start the pod with Brentford. Jay Harris is the Athletics Brentford correspondent, and he is with us um, on what has been a very good season. Is this the crowning moment?
3: Yeah, definitely. I think obviously the opening day victory over Arsenal was a was a really special moment. But I think just with the context, with it was only a month ago that it felt like Brentford were in a real spot of bother. They hadn't won in eight matches, and then since then, beating Norwich City, beating Burnley, and to then go to the you know the European champions, the world champions and win so convincingly and come from behind to win. I just think, you know, I'm sure we've all seen the scenes and the stands on um, on Saturday at Stamford Bridge. Such a special moment, not just in Brentford' season, but a lot of people I've spoken to claiming that, it, you know, it might be the best result in the club's history.
2: What's changed them from when they were going through their sticky spell to now? I would have thought for outsiders, it'd be very easy to go, oh, the signing of, of Christian Eriksen. But uh, to those inside the club, to those with knowledge, is it, is it something more than that? Obviously,
3: Ericsson's definitely played a factor. I think Brentford had struggled to create chances from open play all season. We all know that Ivan Tony's a you know fantastic goal scorer at this level if he's given the opportunity, but he just wasn't given those opportunities. Ericsson's definitely helped him with that. And before this game, they switched to a back four, which has seemed to make them a little bit more fluid. But actually a return to a back three ended up being a, a tactical masterstroke, completely caught Chelsea off guard. So there's lots of different different things that I think, you know, luck, that intangible thing, has all just kind of fallen into place with Brentford over the last few weeks. Did, did the,
1: did the scoreline on Saturday flatter them
3: in any way? Or did
1: they actually, you know, even before they went a goal down, were they looking you know, like the team that was more likely to
3: win the game. Yeah, I don't think it flattered them at all. Like I said, because they lined up with the with the back three and the, the two wing backs, I thought they were going to sit off Chelsea a little bit more and try to be as compact as possible. But it ended up being quite an open game. First 20, 25 minutes, Brentford, um, with a much better side, they dominated Chelsea, really. Ivan Tony had two or three really, well, maybe not really good chances, but certainly decent enough chances to score. And then that Rudiger, you know, Thunderbolt comes out of nowhere. Actually asked Thomas Frank after the game, you know, what was kind of going through your mind. You played so well in the first 45 minutes, had nothing to show for it. Rudiger scores that crazy goal. And he did kind of say, I thought it was a little bit of, oh no, here we go again. Uh, we're not going to get anything from this game. And then after that, just to give you a summary of how quickly Chelsea unraveled, there were 12 minutes and 10 seconds between Chelsea opening the scoring and Brentford going 3-1 up. So all of that hard work that Brentford had kind of been putting in in the first half, suddenly just all came together in this 10, 12-minute spell. And um, yeah, they were just phenomenal. Chelsea didn't know what to do. I think Tuchel's even come out and said they weren't mature enough, they didn't defend properly. So yeah, Brentford, very, very good value for the scoreline.
2: Talking to Adam before we started recording this, and it's sort of get to April in a season, and virtually every player of every team has been analysed, interviewed, had articles written on them, featured player on a match of the day, whatever it may be, right? It it feels like by the time you get to this stage of the season... Mm you're scrabbling around to find something new. And yet every time I watch Brentford, I think, oh, nobody's analysed him this season or nobody's done a piece on him this season. Or or to a certain extent, and, I, you know, maybe I'm showing ignorance here, going, where where on earth has he come from? Why haven't we been talking about him? And you could argue the same thing happened on Saturday with Vitali Yanel, couldn't you?
3: Yeah, definitely. And I should start off by saying that my analysis on Yano is coming. Don't worry about it. <laughs> um, but... <laughs> But more importantly, for, for anybody who's been been following me this season, I've been saying from, from the moment I watched Vitaliyan for the first time, what an incredible player he is. They signed him from VFL Bochum in the Bundesliga 2 in October 2020 for £500,000. And I just can't get my head around what a, a simply incredible piece of business that is. Lord knows how much he's worth now. And, you know, signed a new contract until 2026 on Friday. So fantastic player with a great future ahead of him, only 23 years old. And when I was in the press conference on Friday, so even before, you know, Jan outscored these two goals at the weekend, you know, I asked Thomas Frank about kind of his importance to the team. And, and Thomas Frank said he's one of those players where when he's not playing, you realise quite how special and how good he is and just what that he kind of takes away from the team when he's not there. But yeah, phenomenal player. They actually see him as a defensive mid-long term, so the two goals on Saturday were a bit out of character.
2: But that, but that is the feeling, Adam, isn't it, with Brentford? You know, each week somebody, somebody different tends to to crop up as, certainly when they've been in good form somebody different each week is the one who crops up as the one who you, your eyes are drawn to
1: I think also they've been massively helped in this little run of form one by Ericsson but also by the goalkeeper being back David, David Raya it feels like that period where they had him out of the team I'm sure it corresponded with other players being out of form and things like that so maybe it's not as significant you know as just a goalkeeper coming back in but he seems uh, David Raya who Arsenal have looked at before he seems to be at absolutely fundamental to the way they play, Jay.
3: Yeah, definitely. I think with David Rea, what I've kind of witnessed over the course of the season is that kind of understanding that a goalkeeper has, not just with his defenders, but with his midfielders and attackers that can only come over an extended period of time. And kind of the best example I can give you of this is that when Brentford are are hitting Chelsea on the counter-attack on Saturday, the second David Rea will get the ball from a corner, he will scan immediately for where Mbumo and Tony are And he'll just hit that ball first time. It's clearly something they've worked on in training so many times. And I remember when Alvaro Fernández was kind of deputising Ferreira. You know, he's only been at the club since uh, August. You know, he's only here on loan. We don't know if his, his stay is going to be extended. But that kind of familiarity and understanding with his teammates' game just wasn't there. And, you know, sometimes when you need to be quick and you need to be decisive in the Premier League, those momentary lapses where he's not on the same wavelength means that Brentford don't have an opportunity to go on a counter-attack. But then just again, Reyes comf- comf- so comfortable with the ball at his feet, um, you know, never never panics under pressure. I know there's a few Man United fans questioning why De Gea was left out of the Spain squad and Reyes was put in. But I think, you know, performances that Saturday prove again why he's definitely in contention.
2: I think Manchester United fans have got a list of about 120 questions <laughs> at the moment, so uh, I won't worry about it, Joe. And I, I don't want to be all negative here. I don't want to throw because, you know, this is time for Brentford to celebrate and so on and so forth. Are there any concerns that they might not be able to keep Christian Eriksson?
3: I think, again, Thomas Frank said this on Saturday and he, and he said it the entire time since, since Ericsson's been at the club, that they just kind of need to live in the moment. Uh, he described it as an ongoing fairy tale and it truly is that. Certainly, I didn't expect Ericsson to have such a quick impact. Uh, again, Thomas Frank said that the second Ericsson said he wanted to play football again, Thomas Frank was convinced he'd get back up to the previous level, but even he didn't expect it would happen this quickly. So, yeah, of course, there's going to be a little bit of fear I think also you need to remember the kind of like wider context. You know, Ericsson plays with a lot of his international teammates at Brentford, you know, Matthias Jensen, Christian Norgard. That's before you consider the the connection with Thomas Frank, because they used, he used to coach him a long time ago for Denmark's under-17s. We know that it was a critical thing for Christian Ericsson to play in London again. So I think all those kind of factors are kind of in Brentford's favour at the moment. And obviously just this story that they're creating at the moment, I think internally they'll be hoping that you will show a little bit of loyalty and, and hopefully stay uh, past the end of the season.
1: And Jay, Jay, there was a really interesting thing you did on Friday, writing about how Brentford tried to get Thomas Tuchel yes. six or seven years ago. Can you just explain how close that was and, and why that didn't happen in the
3: end? Yeah, so from my understanding, basically Thomas Tuchel and Matthew Benham both became aware of each other. Um, we all know how innovative a coach Thomas Tuchel is. I don't think it should really come as any surprise that he was, you know, after he left the mains, he was kind of looking for, I guess, a little bit of inspiration, um, trying to understand how he could become a better coach. And he caught wind of what Matthew Benham was, I guess, only just implementing at Brentford and FC Midland at the time in terms of using his his data from his betting company, Smart Odds. And kind of taking this very, you know, moneyboard approach, especially in terms of recruitment and things like that. So they had a meeting at a hotel in Hamburg, had a really great conversation, discussed loads of different things. And then Tuchel decided to um, to come to visit London off the back of that. And this was around the time that um, Brentford announced that Mark Warburton would be leaving his position as as coach at the end of the season. So if you can cast your minds back to, to 2015, this was a very different looking Brentford. This was a very old school, traditional Brentford. And Matthew Benham was kind of, trying to take them to, to the future, to where they are today, I guess. And it was a bit of a controversy that they, they, just, they announced that Warburton was going to leave. They'd just been promoted from League One. They ended up that season finishing sixth in the Championship, but lost in the semi-finals of the playoffs to Middlesbrough. And where Tuchel comes into that is that, as I said, Matthew Benham and Brentford's board were trying to shift the club to become a bit more modern. And I think Benham essentially put on a little bit of a charm offensive, invited Tuchel down to, to the Smart Odds offices, Gave Tuchel and his, some of his um, coaches who he's worked with in the past, a tour of the Tory offices, gave them a breakdown of how Smart Odds is, um, I guess, operation works. Took them to the Emirates thought Arsenal, beat Everton 2-0, then took them for dinner at, um, you know, the lovely Hakkasan restaurant. So I don't think it ever got that close to, to Tuchel actually being appointed at Brentford. I think it's just... You know, two great minds, having a collaboration, sharing ideas. And I've no doubt that Benham put the idea towards him, but Tuchel very politely declined. And this is where, you know, I guess the real funny element of the story comes in because Tuchel said, you know, I'm not really interested, but you should definitely take a look at this, you know, young 27-year-old who's coaching Hoffenheim's under-19s. And of course, that's uh, none other than Julian Nagelsmann. So definitely sliding doors moments all over the place with with this story.
2: And you can read that uh, on The Athletic right now. Jay, good to talk to you. Talk to you soon. Absolute pleasure, guys. Thanks. Now, I'm sure you will know that every Monday on The Athletic, you can read David Ornstein's weekly column full of the biggest stories and news from inside football. You can now get it uh, to listen to as well, exclusive for subscribers to The Athletic or Apple Podcasts plus every Monday lunchtime. So head to The Athletic app or the Athletic Football podcast feed on Apple Podcasts, and it will be right there.
0: This episode is supported by FX's Welcome to Wrexham. Celebrity owners Rob McElhenney and Ryan Reynolds' small-town Welsh football club has finally been promoted into League Two after 15 seasons in the National League. Dedicated staff and supporters celebrate the team's return to glory while bracing for the newfound challenges that come with being in a higher league. Will Wrexham AFC stand up to the challenge and rise again into League One? FX is welcome to Wrexham, all new Thursdays on FX, stream on Hulu. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24 7 US based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right you can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See
2: terms at discover.com slash credit card. So all eyes were on Qatar on Friday as the draw for the World Cup was made. Matt Slater was there for The Athletic. He is with us now. Um, what did you learn from from well, from your whole trip, but actually, be, before we talk about the draw, you you sat through FIFA Congress as well. So, thank you for doing that on our behalf. You're welcome. Yeah, no, uh, <laughs> I pretend not to
4: like it, but I actually secretly like all that. It was. Oh, um, you know, it's true, Mark. I don't know what to tell you. Um, <laughs> yeah, so it was a big a big week for FIFA and for Qatar for those for those two key reasons. One one is the sort of politics of, of global football, and that took place. on on Thursday and on the Wednesday, all the confederations had their meetings. So there was an awful lot going on. And then Friday was, I think, the bit where most regular people care, the draw. So there was an awful lot happening. And, you know, I think all our listeners will understand that, that this World Cup is a bit different. I think everyone's vaguely aware of at least one or two of the controversies around the staging of it in Qatar and the building of the stadiums. The nature of the country, the pushback from people that lost the bid, the people that are concerned about how that bid was won, the fallout that it, the, at FIFA, the massive changes there. I mean, it's it's been a, it's been quite the decade. Now all of this stuff arrives arrives in Qatar this week, and the impression I get is it's happening, guys. The old adage about possession being nine tenths of the law, and they've got it right. It, possession is 99% of the law now. There is no more debate to be had, really, about should Qatar have have this World Cup? Is it going to have this? Yes, it's having it. It's having it. Did you
2: get the feeling that, that therefore, because of that, exactly what you're saying, that Qatari officials in particular were getting irritated by the end of it with the constant questions they were having to field regarding their suitability as hosts? And, And the second part of that, Matt, which I also think is really interesting, is were the majority of those questions coming from... Western European media? Uh, yes and yes. I think what's
4: happened over the last few years is Qatar has realised it had a PR problem on, on a number of levels and has, has tried to answer questions. It's not used to answering questions. doesn't have, you know, a big lively media. And I can give you umpteen examples of just on an everyday basis, how they get a bit confused by people like me asking them questions. And, oh, sorry, didn't we do a press conference? Did you not get our press release? Well, yes, but now I have some questions to ask you. Just little things like that. So there's been a lot of that and uh, people have been over, I've been over, lots of other people have been over, human rights activists, trade unions, they've hosted things, they have tried. Now, we can have a massive debate about, have they tried hard enough? Have they delivered on the promises they've made? Are they implementing things properly? Do they have considerably further to go? Huge debate, and we've got months more to do that. But the Qataris, I think this is really important, feel that, look, we have made progress. This is the way we used to be this is how we are. We've got people to audit and vet us. We've listened to you. We've invited you over. We've answered your questions. We've been around this a few times. We've showed you the workers' camps. We've showed you the stadiums. Here's the trade union that used to be incredibly critical of us, is now saying to us, do you know what? On the building sites of the World Cups, they're, they're comparable Western standards. They weren't, but they are now. And I think the Qataris are sort of saying, well, look, if we are doing this again, and for and and for months and weeks more where it's the same questions and you're not kind of even acknowledging that we've made any progress and it's get you're coming to my country, somebody for the first time, and you're sort of, there's no acknowledgement, there's no attempt to, they're getting a bit fed up. And I definitely, on this trip, noticed the change. They've gone from going, sort of in quite, you know, you, you, you talk to a Qatari, there's always be like Western PR people around you, and they and they would do this sort of full court press on you afterwards to sort of impress upon you, progress, don't be a hypocrite, look around the bigger region, da, 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 da. all these points that I think are you know, valid, certainly, certainly worth to have in your mind. The Qataris, I think I noticed this time, were a bit more on the front foot. It's, look, we have made progress. We can prove it. We've got someone up there. We've got a third party person here to say they've been, we've made progress. So we're not going to sit here in our, in, in our big moment and have you lot criticise us. We're going to push back. And that, that is what I noticed for the first time on this trip.
1: It's, it's also unsustainable for them to have, you know, a five-week tournament where Qatari officials are being wheeled out to apologise every day. You know, for, in terms of the whole purpose of this tournament is, is for them to celebrate, uh, whether, whether we agree with it or not, Arab culture, Qatari culture, for it to be an Arab World Cup. And they're not going to just come out just because, you know, myself or a BBC reporter or a Sky reporter want them to come out every morning and say, yeah, we got that wrong. We got that wrong. We're sorry about this. We're sorry about that. I mean, it's just entirely, it's really unrealistic. So I think we're at a point now where people are either prepared to acknowledge that things were bad, things have got better, things can still be better, or there'll still be still be people who just say, you know, you can nuance as much as of this as you want, but some really, really bad things have happened, and it should never be happening. And those are kind of the the two positions now, which you know people can make their own mind up. I'd agree with that, Adam. I mean, I, and I and I think that's where Qataris are right now,
4: and FIFA have their back. That's the other thing. You know, I think FIFA have you know tried. They, I don't think they've tried that hard at times, but they, they they've sort of yes, we've got human rights issue you know uh, uh, script in our in our in our rule book now and. We no, we're never gonna pick a World Cup host like that again. And they can prove that. They can say, look, that's look how we did it for 2026. You know, they can say there's progress. Look, we've got a new boss, we've got a new new committees, blatter and that lot have all gone. We've been through that process. Look, we can prove it. The Department of Justice are no longer investigating us and treating us like a mafia type organization. They've given us some money back. They wouldn't do that if they didn't trust us. So the messaging around FIFA's changed as well. I think basically you're right. They are sick of being defensive. And now this is their fun bit, right? This is the sort of we've, the, the decade, the big punt we made on the mega events. We want to tell you our new story. We want to show you our gleaming buildings. We want to tell you that we're open and welcome and welcoming to the world. We're, we're sick, frankly, of the oh my god, this absolutely appalling decision has been made, and we have to justify it.
2: Uh, Infantino made several statements, didn't he, calling for countries to to end wars on a, hmm. on a different subject. But I'm not sure who he was talking about because he, he didn't mention, he didn't mention the, a, a country or a leader by name.
4: No, he didn't. I, so he did t- two kind of key speeches, really. One in Congress, where I think he might have said Ukraine. I don't think he could get aw- away from it because that was entirely the context. He certainly didn't say Russia because, so, of course, Ukraine didn't come to the Congress and Russia did. The Russian football union did mm. they were unable to ban them. So that was quite interesting. So that was one of the big political stories. Uh he didn't, he certainly he didn't criticize Russia. He did, you know, the general war bad. Um, and maybe FIFA can't solve every problem in the world. No, no kidding. Um, he, so he so he did he did some of that. And then his in the big speech, I guess, during the draw, when the the bigger audience, the sort of global football fan audience was there, he gave a very come by our isn't war bad? Uh, speech come on, let's let's embrace peace.
2: So we had that, and a, and a final thing which which seems seems a little bit trite now, really considering some of the stuff we've been talking about. But the two year World Cup was officially dropped. Well, yeah, I guess so. No, yes, uh, well,
4: yeah, yeah. In well, in, in a sort of really kind of uh, you know, cute way, it was sort of Johnny Anfantino washed his hands of it kind of publicly by sort of saying. It wasn't my idea. It wasn't FIFA's idea. You asked us to do it, and we've spent the last year or so doing this feasibility study. We've proven it can be done. You know, that sort of theoretical, could we have a Mm. Biennial World Cup? Yes, we could. I'm sort of hearing, though I didn't say this in brackets, that you perhaps don't like it that much, or there's a lot. There's certainly opposition in Europe and the big clubs and the players, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, and the fans and all that. So maybe we won't do it. But just the, the point I really want to make is, it wasn't my idea. So that was that was the the man whose idea it was running away from 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 this, <laughs> disowning it, and and basically sort of by implication throwing Arsene Wenger under the bus. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, that was that was a that was quite that was quite funny and shameless. Um,
2: well, uh, yeah, we're going to talk about an interview Adam's done with the Paris Saint-Germain president next. So stay with us, Matt. What's your uh, what's your next governing body congress that you've got inked Ooh. in the diary?
4: Well, I, I think UEFA have got one coming up. I got an email oh. this morning about
2: their um, about what's on the agenda, which I haven't had a chance to open yet. But I, I'm, I'm probably going to go <laughs> well, anyway. Well, well we, we better we better crack on and get this podcast finished so you can <laughs> yeah. open that email because right I know enough. you're very excited. Right, oh, yes. let's talk. Uh, let's talk. Uh, Adam's interview next with the Paris Saint-Germain president, Nasser al khalifi Staying with Qatar then, Uh, Adam, you've uh, done this interview that's on the site today with Nasser Al-Khalifi, the president of Paris Saint-Germain. He's also the chairman uh, of the European Clubs Association and he's also the chairman of Qatari uh, Sports Investment. So he's got a lot going on. What kind of man is he, Adam? he's He's got even more going on than that. I mean, he's also on the UEFA
1: Executive Committee. He's the Qatar Tennis Federation, the Asian Tennis Federation. He's just launched a global paddle tournament as well. Um, so, yeah, lots lots of lots of different positions, as well as being the chair of B in Sport, one of the largest acquirers of live sport in the world. What kind of man is he? I think he is it's very difficult to know. I mean, I didn't spend that long with him, not to undersell the interview, but I only had around 15, 15, 15 to 20 minutes with him. So how well can you get to know someone in 15 to 20 minutes? He is... More laid back than he might come across, you know, on television when you see him just sort of glaring on from the stands. He's quite funny. I think he has different ideas. I think he likes the idea of challenging the status quo. And I think he also seems to be buying into this idea that he is someone who can promote fairness in European football, which, you know, for those, for those, among his peers who have accused, you know, Manchester City and PSG for the last ten years of distorting European football, I think they find that quite difficult to stomach. This idea that the PSG chairman is the guy who, you know, who who stopped the Super League and is now running the European Clubs Association is very high up at UEFA as well. And
2: following on from that. So he makes the point to you that he can't understand why the Champions League doesn't have a bigger profile than the Super Bowl, right? That he did that, That's one of his things with you. <laughs> at the same time, I feel like saying to him, you do know the Super Bowl this year had a team in it that went from being the worst in the league two years ago to now the equivalent of, of the final. They, they were the runners-up. So one of the reasons why people buy into it so much is because genuinely, at the start of a season half the league probably have got good chances of winning it which is completely it's com- the complete opposite of the champions league yeah i mean he he would argue that if it was
1: up to him you would almost have a kind of highly unregulated investment space in fo- in football where you could have lots and lots of psgs where You know, PSG 10, 15 years ago weren't competing at the other end of the Champions League and weren't, in fact, anywhere near it. So he would say, well, let people invest, let people grow. The problem is there's only so many Qatar investment projects to go around. So that's not going to happen at at lots and lots of different clubs. The the other thing, which I'm sure he does realise, given that he's involved in in buying sports TV rights, is the Super Bowl doesn't get as big an audience as the Champions League final globally. The Champions League final is bigger But I think what he's talking about is this concept of thinking creatively around events and around live sport. And how can you, and it all comes down to the essential question, which you and Matt, I'm sure, discuss every single week, which is how can you grow this thing without pissing off all your other stakeholders, whether that's media or fans or rival clubs? How can you continue to make money out of this, grow something commercially in a way that doesn't upset everyone? And I think some of the ideas, which he talked about in this piece, are pretty uncontroversial. The idea, for example, that the Champions League Rather than just starting on a Tuesday night where you've got six or seven games all going on at the same time, why not have one night which is standalone with an opening ceremony so it feels like more of an event, more of a launch? that doesn't seem so, you know, so wild or controversial. The idea as well that the Champions League final could be a more of a creative event. He talked about the way the Americans think. I think part of his thinking was skewed, skewed by the fact that um, the ECA had two guys in from Harvard Business School presenting. And I think some, some people there just sort of drunk the Kool-Aid a little bit and come away thinking how can, how can we buy into all these different the different ideas whether it's NFTs or Bitcoin or Metaverse or over-the-top media service—all things which are going to happen, you know, in due course in, in European football. But I think he, you know he came out of, of that presentation inviting Harvard Business School into PSG to look at how they do things and how they can refine things. So there's there's always going to be backlash against any of these ideas, and, and, and he even he says some of these ideas might not be very good, but it doesn't mean we shouldn't talk about them, and it, and it doesn't mean that we have to just accept. Things staying the way they are forever. That's not me necessarily backing them. but
2: No, but basically, Adam, that is a fair point that we discuss a lot, Matt, on, mm. on the Business of Sport mm-hmm. podcast, which is there is nothing wrong with throwing ideas out there. They may be bad right. in the end and they may not work, but progression never happens unless you actually throw some ideas out there.
4: I, I completely agree. And um, I think Adam's piece is really interesting. I think Nasir Khalifi is a really interesting guy. I mean, he wears so many hats. I mean, he, that, that, that that is... What what makes him kind of controversial, to be honest? You know, this this at times he is this I wouldn't say self appointed, but but it, it's become part of the story about him, this sort of savior of European football. But other times he is this massive media rights buyer that has a commercial interest in this. There's various conflicts, and he seems incredibly conflicted as well, and just busy. But I think his points and the points you're making about there's nothing wrong with progress. There's nothing nothing wrong with repackaging stuff and shaking things up. And I think some of his ideas that come across in the piece are are perfectly sensible. and And they're actually, they've been talked about for a while. So one is this idea, and this was kind of one of the reasons, there were several reasons, of course, but one of the things that was about, that was feeding into the European Super League argument, that UEFA was running the show commercially, they, they basically had this very cosy relationship with a marketing company. Nothing really ever changed. The clubs felt a little bit dictated too. And I think the the point that many of the big clubs were making was, well, domestically, we do this stuff, right? We're quite good at this. We've got really good commercial people. We're a little bit ahead of you. And this just seems a little bit the same every year. You know, wh- Why don't we have a partnership like we have back at home in the Bundesliga, Serie A, La Liga, Premier League in particular? And, and UEFA kind of, Got there eventually, they've gone with a joint venture. And I do think we're gonna just naturally get some more of these ideas about do you replicate, do you repeat the COVID experiment of having a final four type tournament, you know, one place, and we have like a big build-up week. That was uh, you know, sort of necessity that did that, but it it was perceived really well, it went quite well. I, I like Khalifi's idea about a better launch. You you start with a bang, defending champions, play someone. You, you start with you start with a big game. I quite like innovating around the super cup. I mean, let's be honest, if your if your team's not in the super cup, do you care? Well, that's a bit of a wasted opportunity, isn't it? And look, we we know the athletic, there are listeners everywhere, there are readers everywhere. We've got to go beyond just the fans that come to the stadium, the fans that are buying the big premium subscription back home. What do we give fans in Africa, Asia, North America? Ooh, you know, if we don't want to take competitive fixtures because of all sorts of complexities, can we at least give them a decent friendly? You know, so little things like that. And I quite like the, I, I don't mind at all. I've already seen the comments in Adam's piece around doing something around a halftime show. Combo Ball asked the question last year about could we have 25 minutes for the Cup of the Libertadores? Because they were thinking, could we have a bit of a song and dance routine in there? And, 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 and FIFA and IFEB said no. But, you know, why not? A regular NFL halftime is only 12
2: minutes. They 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 realise the Super Bowl's different. They realise the Super Bowl is important. Yeah, and actually, one of the big discussion points every year ahead of a Super Bowl is how players react to a halftime that's double its normal length because that is, that is quite different for them. As far as Paris Saint-Germain is concerned, Adam, he, he talks to you about how his role has changed. The, the interesting thing about him is, as Matt says, he's got these many hats. So
1: he is simultaneously president of PSG, UEFA executive committee, chair of the ECA, running B in sports, which I don't think we always realise in the UK, actually how big B in sport is in in France, the the Middle East, uh, the States. You know, it's a huge, huge uh, acquirer of live sports. And there's there's lots of other things that that he's doing at the same time. And it was interesting. I mean, he was asked about, I asked him about this, you know, this idea that there's a lot of people, you know, at that ECA conference last week, who don't really love the idea that NASA is running the show. And that you have lots of people there from whether it's PSG or being sport, having quite a lot of say now about how European football is run, given that for a long time they've been painted as the threat to European football. His point was, well, when all the clubs left to join the Super League, I had a number of different club directors coming to me and asking me to be president because I was the most recognisable senior executive left in the room. So I was just helping them out. Then when the media pro deal in France, which was the television deal, which collapsed last year and left French football in a really poor state, Collapsed. He then said, "Well, then the league came to me and said, NASA, can you help us? Can you sort this out?' And I sorted it out. And and there's lots of these different situations. You know, UEFA. Oh, all these other executives have dropped out. What was I meant to do? They've asked me to help out. I'm helping out. And then as soon as I help out and things look good again, all of a sudden everyone says I'm conflicted. But when they need me, they want my help. Now he's got a point. He's got a point here, right? You can't on the on the one hand constantly just say, you know, this guy is." A danger to European football. But then as soon as anything comes along where you need a bit of money or something sorting, go running to them and say, oh, by the way, Nasser, can you sort this out? I mean, you've had an interesting situation in, in France over the past few weeks where they've agreed a deal with uh, CVC to acquire, I think it's 13% of the League 1 commercial and broadcasting package, a little bit like what we've seen in La Liga. And you know PSG have made a gesture by saying actually you know we won't take all the money straight away you know we'll leave it to be spread amongst some of the smaller clubs and middle clubs. So he's saying you know I now have clubs in France saying NASA thank you you know without you without PSG we won't be able to we won't be able to do this and we would never have, have uh, I think that deal was worth in excess of a billion we'd never have driven so much if it wasn't for PSG investing so much into French football into European football. So, you've got that situation again. And what it's done is create this culture of dependency, which just continues actually to make PSG and and Nasser al Khalafi more and more powerful. It's interesting as well, because he was asked about this idea of PSG, a bit like Manchester City, is it just sports washing, a bit like Newcastle? Is it sports washing? Is it a vanity project? And, And his answer to that was well, you know, I bought this, we bought this club for 70 million euros in 2010, 2011. And I'm now turning down bids for the club, which are worth huge multiples of that. So that means it's an investment project. And, and you know, we've seen with Manchester City as well, that when Silver Lake acquired, um, I think it was 10%, was it 10% of the club? That at the time, it gave Man City the highest valuation of the sports team in, in the world. So, there is, you know, these counter narratives which can be made by whether it's City or PSG or Newcastle about investment projects and how their investment creates a more competitive landscape and how they're there to inject capital into the sport. And this will ultimately be, you know, the nub of what is of the discussions that will continue to go on far beyond the World Cup and over the next decade or so in terms of what sort of sport do we want and who do we look to for help when you know when the shit hits the fan. completely
4: agree. I mean, it is funny that, certainly with the ECA, right? I mean, I, I mean, po- the points he makes that I can give examples to sort of back them all up. I mean, I can also give some examples to just knock them all down again. But I mean, that's the point, right? You know, he he raises these issues. So the ECA is a classic one, right? It, it was essentially run by Bayern Munich, and with 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 sort of heavy backing from the big Premier League clubs. But then European Super, and of course, you, you know, Andrea Agnelli was the app. At- the ultimate boss, Juventus. So he gets that tumultuous weekend, which was about a year ago. And Agnelli walks out with the big six, with Real and Barca. I mean, for, for a day or two, the ECA was dead, dead. Nasser al is the one left standing. Bayern didn't go with it, but we, we are led to believe, certainly flirted with the idea. The rest of the clubs are looking around going, well, who's going to lead us? It can't be any of the, the, the traitors. Do we go with Bayern again? Well, Bayern have sort of, you know, kind of run the show before. rumaniga used to run it and, you know, their lawyer helped basically write the rule book. And it was sort of like, oh, God, we can't go with Bayern again. There was no real choice. It had to be him. And, of course, he had, through being, an outsized say with UEFA. UEFA needed PSG and being to stay. To be loyal, and this is it. You know, you go back to the decision to buy PSG. Was that in any way connected to the fact that the Qatar's bid for the World Cup and getting getting Platini to change his vote, investing in in the favorite team, and investing in the French league? We're talking about big, big, big boy stuff here, geopolitics stuff, and he is right at the center of it. He is the front man of Qatar's investment in football.
2: Uh, we will leave it there. Now that Adams mentioned, there's a global paddle tournament as well. He you booked into their congress? You know what? That's a fantastic story, Mark. I and mean, you're you're joking. <laughs> but we're going to do
4: paddle for the business <laughs> oh, war podcast. Oh, it's because it is absolutely fascinating.
2: Right, is. I'm not joking about. I'm not joking about the tournament. I'm joking oh, right. about whether there's a congress. But go well, on, go it, on. Well, let's I don't finish know it. If do
4: a congress. So very quickly, this is this is like a, a prequel. This is this is the advert for a podcast that we haven't planned yet. Yeah. But I am yeah. going to do it. So, yeah. Paddle is a is sort of mini tennis, you know, that sort of shortened tennis, really big yeah. in Spain. They've had this uh, global tour run by Estrella. There's so many things that we like about this, Mark, the beer company. Yeah. But yeah. it was great for Estrella, not so great for any of the athletes. Now, Nasser al likes Paddle. It's quite popular in the Middle East as well. And he has combined, again, with the governing body, you can see the parallels here, to say, do you know what, let's take back the global tour from this big commercial sponsor and we'll do it, i.e., a Champions League, and being will back it. So it's almost like kind of a Champions League. Super League row in reverse, and they are taking their basically taking the talent back. It's a bit like darts. We can definitely throw <laughs> some darts parallels in here as well. And the long story short, uh Nesra Khalifi has saved the day again. He really you know, and they they as I was leaving Doha last week, I could see the signs going up. And near my hotel was the big tennis center there. The I think it was the first big new paddle. Forget Estrella. There'll be a, there'll be a fight about it because I think some contracts will be broken. So anyway, that is the podcast. It's also right. it's
1: also it's also the thing that when we were speaking that he seemed most excited about. Yeah, wow. he loves it. He absolutely <laughs> loves it, doesn't he? Right. Like, so
2: there are two th- there are two things I need to say here. Then uh, Adam's interview uh, is on the Athletic now, and you can read that. And the paddle episode of the Business of Sport podcast will come soon. Yes. Right. Excellent. Adam, Matt, thank. you thank you you're welcome and you can read plenty more as I say on that story across The Athletic and you can subscribe to The Athletic for just a pound a month for the first six months go to theathletic.com slash football pod thanks for listening
1: The Athletic